Om Jnana Mirandasya Gyananjana Shalakaya Chakshuvanilitanyena Tasmai Shri Guruve Namaha Hello and welcome to our Seeking the Essence podcast. I'm your host, Vishaka Dasi. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're all having a beautiful day or night, wherever you are on the planet. I'm currently in Northern California with a beautiful gathering of very devotionally charged ladies. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to share something from just yesterday. We had a little informal discussion class and I was going through a really valuable section of our scripture Chaitanya Charitamrita which is discussing it's kind of giving this Google Earth vision of where we are in this world and, and the, the, the world as a whole and zooming in to the strand of brave souls who are practicing devotion you know, Krishna Bhakti and also just and then from there on describing the evolution of the soul and progression of faith, you know, culminating in divine love for the Lord Sri Krishna. And it just gives wonderful perspective about where we've come from, where we are, where we're going, and wanted to share that. I hope you get something out of it. Hari Bol. So this is a really Really nice section to read from. This is Mahaprabhu's, what we call Rupa Shiksha. means Mahaprabhu's instructions to Rupa Goswami. And they're very significant because Mahaprabhu established Rupa Goswami as his successor. Right? And so we are known as the Rupa Nuga line, Rupa Nuga Sampradaya, the followers of Rupa. And... And so there was at one time Mahaprabhu instructed Rupa Goswami personally for 10 days. And he instructed his older brother Sanatan for two months at another time. And Rupa Goswami, I can also mention, he's known as the teacher, the acharya of Abhideya Tattva. Abhideya Tattva means the way, the path, you know, sadhana bhakti. You know how we will reach the goal. Rupa Goswami has elaborated on that the most, and so in his writings, that's the subject matter that he's discussing, like in Upadeshamrita. You know the the process and what is the what is he's establishing? What is the nature of pure devotion? That's and what are the practices? Hmm. Right. Right. So he's establishing that the practice of pure devotion is the way to the goal. The goal is prema bhakti, pure love right, for the Lord. And then the way to attain that is through practices of pure devotion. And so he's discussing that and also what is the, what is the nature of pure devotion? What is the mood foundational to the practice of pure devotion? Shuddha bhakti, right? And, and now, so this is, this is at the be- beginning of their discussion. They meet in Prayag. And I really, really like the beginning part because Mahaprabhu gives this amazing perspective, like kind of zooming out and, and, and then gradually zooming in to this, this sec- the small section 
of living beings who are engaged in the culture of pure devotion. So it gives you that, just gives you this wonderful perspective on like where we are like within the whole and, and how precious this is also. So, okay. We'll begin here. Emata dashtin prayagero hiya shirupe shikadilo shakti sanchariya for ten days, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu stayed at Prayag and instructed Rupa Goswami, empowering him with the necessary potency. And Mahaprabhu is also like training him, Rupa and also his brother Sanat, because they're they are his they are the future leaders of his mission. They're carrying things forward, and they're also the ones that he empowers to put his message into writing in a clear and systematic way. So so it's 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 just it's just like a this is a huge moment in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Prabhu kohe shunaru bhakti rasa lakan sucharupe kohi vishta najai vanan. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, My dear Rupa, please listen to me. It is not possible to describe devotional service completely. Therefore, I am just trying to give you a synopsis of the symptoms of devotional service. The ocean of the transcendental mellows of devotional service is so big that no one can estimate its length and breadth. However, just to help you taste it, I am describing but one drop. So then, of course, we have one of Rupa Goswami's books is Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, right? The, the ocean of the nectar of devotion. Right? So that, that phrase is coming from here, right? Mahaprabhu's... And in that text, Rupa Goswami is laying out the science of, of devotion, pure devotion. And so that's being referred to here. Mahaprabhu is saying here, you know, the, this bhakti rasa, this ecstasy of devotion, it is sindhu, it is an ocean. I'm just giving you one bindu, ek bindu, one drop of that. <laughs> so the ocean of the transcendental mellows of devotion is so big that no one can estimate its length and breadth. However, just to help you taste it, I am describing but one drop. In this universe, there are limitless living entities in 8,400,000 species. And all are wandering within this universe. So this is so. Let's do like a Google Earth here, like zoom out. This is where the journey begins. In this universe, there are limitless living entities and eight million four hundred thousand species, and all are wandering within this universe. <laughs> The length and breadth of the living entity is described as one ten thousandth part of the tip of a hair. This is the original subtle nature of the living entity. And, and this is all, like hearing this, we can also say it's also very humbling, isn't it? Right? We get some perspective on the degree of our significance. <laughs> 
the, the soul, the Atma is described as one ten thousand part of the tip of a hair. And there are unlimited numbers of such souls wandering throughout the universe. So, but, but somehow we lived like in these zoomed in realities, right? We live in the micro, you know, we forget about the macro and we magnify our own experience unlimitedly. And now there's a quotation here stating the same from commentating Bhagavatam. Keshagra Shatta Bhagasya Shatam Sajusatma Kaha Jiva Shukshma Sarupo Yam Sankyatito Hichitkanaha. If we divide the tip of a hair into a hundred parts and then take one of these parts and divide it again into a hundred parts, that very fine division is the size of but one of the numberless living entities. They are all chitkan, particles of spirit, not matter. And of course, hearing this can also be a little depressing too. I go, wow, like, do I matter at all? But this is what's so wonderful, right? When we make a connection with the infinite, right, with Krishna, you know, then we also, you know, become of great significance, right? When his love and his beauty touches us, right? And his love and his beauty, you know, it's of an infinite nature. There's enough for all. And every, you know, every Srila Sridhar mentions, right, how, how like in this plane, you know, so many persons are neglected. But there, even a particle of soil is well cared for, right? And attended to, loved. Srila Sridhar she mentioned once how, you know, this is like during the 80s and how there was this issue with like so many immigrants coming into England and and the government was saying, okay, we're closing the doors now, there's not enough room, right? And Param Gumaraj was saying like, it's Vrindavan, it's all, there's, a, there's enough space to accommodate you know, unlimited numbers of souls, right? And Krishna's heart, Krishna's love is enough for everyone, right? Not only that, but Param Gumaraj mentions that inconceivably he feels some pain of separation from every, every, every soul who's turned away, right? And hence we have loving search for the lost servant. So what is it is hard for us to conceive because we're so accustomed to dealing with limited and finite. Right? And we're we're approaching we can't really understand what infinite means. Right? So we're always we're you know, we're always feeling some lack, right? Or there's not enough, or and then this is how envy we had this interesting discussion with Jamunati the other day about like this is how envy comes about because we're always afraid, like there's not enough, right? But but we're dealing with the infinite, right? There's enough love, there's enough beauty, there's enough space for everyone to be wonderful in their own way, everyone to shine and be beautiful in their own way. So this is like the, the harmonizing point that, okay, we are just one amongst many. <laughs> we are very tiny and insignificant. But if we link with the infinite, we also become significant. And we're, we're, um, we just started reading Ishopanishad in our um, 
our Wednesday meeting, right? And the, that invocation verse, Om Purnamada Purnamidam, is describing the nature of the Lord as, you know, Purna means full, complete. He's always full, he's always complete. If you, if you take away complete from complete, he's still complete. He's always complete. So the Srinamarsh compared, compared the nature of the absolute to zero. It's like zero plus zero, zero. Zero minus zero, zero. So in the same way, like if, one, if we make a connection with that supreme completeness, that, that fullness, we will also feel that. Right? It's, not, it's not that there's, there's an inability to accommodate us or there's an inability to drown each and every one of us in unending satisfaction, right, and joy and fulfillment. So he is, he is all complete, all perfect, all full. And if we connect with that, then we will also feel that. Bala gra shatabagasya. Okay, now we have another quotation. So, and we can also mention, like, this is always very much the style of our gurus. They're, they're stating something and then they're backing it up with scripture. They're never just pulling things out of their hat. And so, so here, Mahaprabhu, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he's, he's stating something and then he's giving, like, two, three citations from scriptures which are saying exactly the same thing. So it sounds a little repetitive, but the idea is that he's supporting what he's saying with evidence. Yeah, that's nice. mm. So here's another verse, and this is from where? This is from from Sreta Shavata Upanishad, it's stating the same thing. So this description of the living entity, of being of this very tiny nature, it's being described. Balagra shatabhagasya shatada kalpitasya cha bhago jiva savigyaya iti chaha parashutihi. If we divide the tip of a hair into 100 parts and then take one part and divide this into another 100 parts, that 10,000th part is the dimension of the living entity. This is the verdict of the chief Vedic mantras. So now we have another quotation. This is from Bhagavatam. Shukshmanam apyaham jivaha. Lord Krishna says, Among minute particles, I am the living entity. And now we have a quotation from Bhagavatam. <laughs> right, right. Apadi mita juvas tanu, rito yadi sarvagatas, tarhina, shashyate, niyamo, juvanetarata. Ajani chayan mayam tad, avimucha iranchibhavet, samam anujanatam yad amatam matadishtataya. O Lord, although the living entities who have accepted material bodies are spiritual and unlimited in number, if they were all pervading, there would be no question of their being under your control. 
If they are accepted, however, as particles of the eternally existing spiritual reality, as part of you, who are the supreme spirit whole, we must conclude that they are always under your control. If the living entities are simply satisfied with being identical with you as spiritual particles, then they will be happy being controllers of so many things. The conclusion that the living entities and the Supreme Personality of Godhead are one and the same is a faulty conclusion. It is not a fact. So just establishing, right, that there's the finite spirit and the infinite spirit, right? We are of the, the finite, minute Tarmajyastavar jangam dui bed, jangamet tirjak jau, stalachar vibed. The unlimited living entities can be divided into two divisions those that can move and those that cannot move. Among living entities that can move, there are birds, aquatics, and animals. So we're kind of zooming in a little more. And a um, and, and related point here is. Um, Srila Bhaktivinotakur, he gives this really helpful discussion of the different stages of consciousness, right? And our Gurudev, he really appreciated that very much, this description. Because the, because the Vedas recognize consciousness everywhere, right? It's just to how, mu- how much they are, to what degree they are covered over, right, by, by matter, and the more that our Gurudev pointed out, the more that consciousness is manifesting itself, the more there is, you know, movement, he explained. Movement is a symptom of consciousness. And so, so like, you know, like mountains, you know, trees, you know, they're, the consciousness is more... Although actually trees are kind of an exception because we, Gurudev explained, right, that trees have very highly developed consciousness. Yeah, but they can't. They can't move. It's a. It's considered a painful birth because they have consciousness almost like humans. But really? yeah, that's why Gurudev would never cut a tree. No. Never. Gurudev said that in the Manu Samhita, there's a description of all the entities of the creation, Manu Rishi, and he says, Gurudev said, when he comes to describe trees, he's crying. That he said. He's crying because it's it's like it's a difficult birth to endure. They, they're standing like that for hundreds of years and they can't move. Yeah, their consciousness. Yeah, and people feel that, right? There's a whole tree movement, right? People feel that. Yeah, yeah. So that's why Guru Dave was so sensitive trees. Hmm. Yeah, trees are so beautiful. So, um, yeah, but generally, you know, the more that consciousness is manifesting, the more movement will be possible, right? Okay, so... So among living entities that can move, there are birds, aquatics, and animals... And, and naturally, the more, and then also within the human species, there's divisions of consciousness, right? And naturally, 
those with more awakened consciousness, they are God conscious, right? Because that's the natural function. It's an innate tendency of the soul, right? To, to be worshipful, right? To love, to serve their Lord. That's a natural function of the soul. So the more that, that one's consciousness is awakened, the more there's that awareness, right, of, of divinity. And that ultimately, then the ultimate, the pinnacle, the highest of f fully blossomed consciousness is Vaishnavism, right, where there's that loving, natural relationship with the Lord. Full expression of consciousness. Beyond just like, you know, scriptural or constructed rules of religion, but just that natural flow of the heart and love. Although the living entities known as human beings are very small in quantity, That, I love the way Srila Samimar says that. Human entities known as human beings <laughs> kind of puts us in our place. I love the way that Srila Samimar says it. The living entities known as human beings. <laughs> go, wow, I thought I was so important. <laughs> Although the living entities known as human beings are very small in quantity, that division may be still further subdivided, for there are many uncultured human beings, like Mlechas, Pulindas, Bodhas, and Shabadas. This is referring to lower races. Veda Nishta Madhyadek, Veda Mukhe Mane, Veda Nishinta Papkone, Dharmana Hingane. Among human beings, those who are followers of the Vedic principles are considered civilized. So, you know, so, so we, again, we're kind of doing the zooming in thing, right? So, so first there are human, so in a broader, you know, broader um, range or whatever, you know, there are very uncultured, you know, just living whimsical random lives, more on, on basis of instinct, like animal instinct. And then, and then saying, little more than that, those who are following some guidelines, right? Not just living, you know, not just living out your urges and instinct and, and no awareness of a higher entity, atheistic. But there's some, there's some recognition that there's a higher entity and, you know, we need to in some regulated way, we have to try to move towards that, follow some principles in society for the good of all. And then narrowing it down further, among these, almost half simply give lip service while committing all kinds of sinful activities. So those, amongst those practicing religion, half of them are just following in an external, superficial, hypocritical type of way. They're simply giving lip service while committing all kinds of sinful activities against these principles. Such people do not care for the regulative principles. Dharma chari majje karma nishta koti karma nishta majje ek jnani shashta. 
among the followers of Vedic knowledge. Most are following the process of fruit of activity and distinguishing between good and bad work. Out of many such sincere fruit of actors, there may be one who is actually wise. So these are persons who are Okay, so you know, karmis, you know, and, you know, and actually that word karmi has been misused, really, because <laughs> karmi is not necessarily a bad thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, but karmi means someone who's like regulating their activity according to the scripture. Actually, karma just means action. No. Yeah, like like the meaning of karma, I mean, karma has different connotations, but the most fundamental meaning, as I understand, is just action. And if you look through Bhagavad Gita, and Gurudev also would use it like that sometimes, karma just means action. You know? And then it's like implied that your action invites a reaction. Your action is automatically bringing out a particular reaction. You don't even need another word for it, right? That's the idea. Yeah, I mean, Sanskrit is such an amazing language, isn't it? So, so here it seems like, also I'm looking in the purple, this, like a karmi here is describing someone who's, in a general sense, trying to do something good in society, trying to live a decent life. You know, there's not so much awareness of the, you know, the higher connection with the Lord, with divinity. But they're trying to live good lives in society. And at the lower end of the spectrum, you have persons who are in a very calculated way, like we were discussing the other day, you know, trying to carry out action, which they know will invite a good reaction for them and you know, it's like like a, a bank account, right? That I'll have some good credit in my future births, right? I'll have, you know, because I'm doing this charity work, then, you know, my future life lives, I'll have wealth, I'll have good family or whatever, right? That's at a lower end of the spectrum. But at a higher end of the spectrum, they're they're trying to do good activity for society. And then narrowing it down further, among sincere karmis, then there may be a jnani, you know, someone who's enlightened by spiritual knowledge. And this is also the progression that we see in Bhagavad Gita, right? Karma yoga, jnana yoga, progressing from selfless, right? That's the key word I'm missing. The karma yogi is, a, is acting selflessly. They're doing, they're performing their duty. And then, what's that phrase in Bhagavad Gita? Sarvam karma kilam parta jnane parisamapyate. This is the progression that's described in Gita, that by selflessly performing our duty, then naturally there will be clearing of the consciousness. The cobwebs will start to clear, and there will be an awakenment 
of spiritual knowledge, spiritual awareness, spiritual perception. Right? The atma will become more tangible, you could say. Because the this, this filters of selfish desire are clearing, because we're acting selflessly, then the soul becomes more apparent, that, that the plane of spirit becomes more apparent. So this is the idea that by, by sincerely acting selflessly, even if it's not directly connected to God, to Krishna, but just in a general sense, like trying to remove the spirit of selfishness, then this purification and this awakenment, right? So then, then there's the jnani, one who has this, this spiritual knowledge. So this is narrowing it down further. Okay, then next verse here. Koti jnani majje hoi hek chana mukta, koti mukta majje dorla bek krishna bhakta. Out of many millions of such wise persons, jnanis, one may actually become liberated. So as a result of their spiritual knowledge, they may actually transcend their bondage right, in this world, their attachment. Well, I'm saying that like once one be, because what's binding us in this world is our mundane attachment, right? But once we become more aware of our spiritual nature, then we naturally become detached. Right? Right, right. Then we naturally become more detached. And because we're not plugging in the fan, right? as the expression goes, because we're not incurring more karma, then we'll become free from that bondage. Then we, one may become mukta, liberated. So out of many millions of such wise men, one may actually become liberated, mukta. And out of many millions of such liberated persons, a pure devotee of Krishna is very difficult to find. <laughs> And this verse we heard Param Guru Maharaj and Gurudev quoting. Like showing the rarity of what it actually means to be a pure devotee. Right? It's not an easy thing to find a pure devotee. It's not an easy thing. Even to aspire for pure devotion, that's not very common. What to speak of actually attaining that, holding that. So, so out of so many jnanis, persons cultivating spiritual knowledge, you may find one actual liberated soul. And then koti mukta, out of millions of such liberated souls, it will be difficult to find one devotee of Krishna, one real devotee of Krishna. A pure devotee of Lord Krishna is very difficult to find. <coughs> liberated soul meaning what if they're unaware of Krishna well because Krishna has different manifestations right and so before you reach Krishna there's, there's the Brahman manifestation so there's that 
like more generic is the impersonal connection. And see, the thing is that most people are not ready for the concept of submission, let's say, surrender, right? And worshiping the personal aspect of the Lord, that's also quite a high realization. The Vedas, in, for the most part, are very hazy. Right? There are a few sections which are describing the superiority of bhakti, you know, the Vaishnava conception, the Krishna conception. You know, that's not, that's a very, represents a very small portion. But for the most part, it's kind of vague, and it's all pointing to Brahman realization, this impersonal, hazy understanding. Right? And then amongst like that group, there's also a whole spectrum. There are some who are just, we don't know. There's a great thing out there, right? Kind of like the Native American culture is probably like that, right? The Aboriginal, like we know there's a great being, right? But you don't really, just don't really know so much, right? The creator's there. But then, then you know, a little more in, or a lot more insidious and serious is the, the, the Mayavad, right? Shankaracharya conception that I am God, right? I am one with that. You know, so there's also the idea of a, of like an impersonal absolute, but it's it's a different conception, right? So there's, in that category, there's a whole spectrum. So liberation is, you meant more like liberation from physical. Exactly, yeah. Sometimes we'll refer to it as liberation from the negative side, but not the positive attainment of liberation. So, yeah, I mean, generally when we use the word, generally in, in our circle, liberation is, we don't use it in a, in a favorable sense. <laughs> I go, you want to be liberated? <laughs> you are not cool. <laughs> I'm not going to hang out with you anymore. <laughs> There's even one verse, and in, in, um, it's included in our book, Prophet and Jivanamrita, where the devotee is saying, Oh, stay liberation, stay away from me. You're going to spoil my reputation. Because <laughs> you know? the, the real devotees, they're not, they just want to serve. Right, because it's a selfish desire. Mm. Yeah. Now, Strictly speaking, real liberation does mean the attainment of our relationship with Krishna. And that's another point Gurudev would make. And there's one, there's one line, um, Muktir, which Gurudev would quote sometimes, Muktir hidvanyatadupam swarupena vevastiti, which means real liberation means to realize our natural position, right, as servants of Krishna, to be situated in our swarup, right, which is in service to Krishna. That is real liberation. So strictly speaking, that's what it means. But generally, when we say liberation, you know, moksha, mukti, it's referring to this generic thing of, of um, like, through one's own efforts, 
and that and that's um that's that that whole line of development is referred to as aroha panta like the ascending line of progress through self ascension like you know so all the yoga practices right austere the practices of austerity and so on meditation the idea is that through your own efforts you will ascend and transcend right and so shilashidamarsh gave a wonderful analogy like that's like getting a passport but not a visa right so you realize your spiritual identity but you can't go further than that unless you're you're unless you're going to enter that higher plane in the spirit of contribution and service, you won't get the visa, right? That's just common sense, right? And so, you know, the mood of the devotees is, you know, because, you know, liberation, moksha is associated more generally with that whole school of thought, right? I want to get out. I just want to get out of the prison. I want to be liberated, right? But the devotees, they don't think like that. They just, they just this is not Mahab- Mahaprabhu actually clearly rejected that as a, as a goal, right? And he said the only real goal is prema, love for Krishna. Because right? another thing is there are even some Vaishnava schools that they, they speak of positive, positive liberation, like association with the Lord and Vaikuntha as a goal, which is like the Christian conception, right? I, I'll do good for God and I'll go to heaven when I die, and, Right? There's also a, you know, in the Vaishnava and the personal school of thought, there's also that idea, right? So even in some Vaishnava lines, you'll find that, like the concept of positive liberation. Like, strictly speaking, it's mentioned there are five types of liberation. There's, um, what is it? Sarupya, Salokya, Sharshti, Samipya, and Sayuja. So one type of liberation to, to live right close to the Lord, to have an abode like the Lord, to have a form like the Lord, to have equal opulence to the Lord. These are all like positive types of liberation um, in Vaikuntha, you know, with the Vishnu form. And then Sayuja is the impersonal merging into the Lord. So, so it's also there in, the, in some Vaishnava schools. But Mahaprabhu rejected that. He said, no, we don't accept that as a legit goal in, in, in the culture of devotion, but only prema. And prema, love, divine love, has no has zero conditions attached. Zero conditions. I just want to love you. That's all. I'm not asking for anything else. Right? Nadanam, najanam, nasundanam, kavitamma jagadisha kamaye, mama janmani, janmanishare, bhavatad bhakti, haitu kitai. I don't want wealth. I don't want followers. I don't want sense pleasure. No. Don't even want liberation, he says there. But let me just take birth again and again and, and have love for you. You know, cause the haituki without any motivation. Let me have unmotivated, causeless love for you. Right? This is why we're here. This is what's so amazing about Mahaprabhu's line. Like it's... You won't find this type of statement of unconditional love anywhere. It's, just, it's the purest type of prayer, the purest type of approach. Yeah, the difference between Vaikuntha and 
then go up with another? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, perhaps to some degree. I mean, in Vaikuntha, there is the element of there is an element of calculation, right? There is Aishvarya Gyan. So there is an awareness. Aishvarya Gyan means awareness of the Lord's divinity. So that means there's some element of calculation there. So and yes, we are told that you know, as I as I said, some of the Vaishnava schools they they cultivate that that aspiration, right? That they want to live with the Lord, right? But that's not allowed in Vrindavan. <laughs> so yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah, Vrindavan is the plane of, you know, wholesale sacrifice, suicide squad, and and then a part of that is also that there's there's zero awareness, there's zero calculation also. There's zero awareness that, oh, this is God and I should serve him. And it's just, you know, I love him so much. He's so beautiful and I want to die for him. And, you know, so it's, it's very different. Yeah, and there's no room for that calculation in, in Vrindavan. But going back to that point about Mukti, you know, it, um, you know, it, it, there's one there's one very funny incident described in Chaitanya Charitamrita where Sarvabhoma Bhattacharya, Sarvabhoma Bhattacharya, he was a uh, he was he was like the pundit to the king. He was the head scholar of the king in in Jagannath Puri, and he was also Mayavadi. He followed the impersonal line of thought, and. Um, And but but he he had this beautiful heart conversion by the association of Mahaprabhu, and he became so fanatic that he wanted to change one of the verses in, in Srimad Bhagavatam that mentions Mukti. There's a line, there's a famous verse in um, Srimad Bhagavatam. This tate nu kampam susamikshamano bunjane vatma kritam vipakam hridvagva purbe vidadannamaste jiveta yo mukti pade sa dayabhak. It's saying that mukti is mentioned there. That one, it's this verse, you've probably heard it explained from some of our devotees before. It's, it's saying, um, it's kind of describing the key to liberation and, and saying that one who only sees fault within themselves, right? Who recognizes they are responsible and only sees how the Lord's mercy is coming to them in the environment, that they are heir to the land of liberation. That they'll very soon become free. And, and so this Sarvabhoma, he became such a fanatic for bhakti that he told Mahaprabhu, we have to change that verse. It's mentioning mukti. We don't, so when we hear mukti, we feel afraid. No, it's very awful, mukti. We should change it to bhakti, that they will attain bhakti. And, and Mahaprabhu like laughed and, and, he, and he told him, no, don't worry. And then he explained this point that, that ultimately the real meaning of, the you know, real liberation means bhakti, right? So the highest connotation of liberation is devotion with the Lord. So... So yeah, you know, there can be some confusion on, on this point sometimes. You know? <laughs> to the extent that Sarvabhama wanted to change the Bhagavatam. 
change the scripture. <laughs> okay. So, we continue. Krishna Bhakta Nishkam Attaeva Shanta Bhukti Mukti Siddhikami Sakaliya Shanta Because the devotee of Lord Krishna is desireless, he is peaceful. Fruitive workers desire material enjoyment. Jnanis desire liberation and yogis desire material opulence. Therefore they are all lusty and cannot be peaceful. Muktanam apisidanam, this is a quotation from Bhagavatam. Muktanam apisidanam narayana parayana sudurlabha prashantatma koti shrapi mahamune. O great sage, out of many millions of materially liberated people who are free from ignorance, and out of many millions of siddhas who have nearly attained perfection, there is hardly one pure devotee of Narayam. Only such a devotee is actually completely satisfied and peaceful. Brahmanda Brahmite Kon Bhagyavanji Guru Krishna Prashade Pai Bhakti Lata Bij. So this is a very famous verse um, describing how the soul comes in connection and receives the Bhakti Lata Bij. You've probably heard that phrase, Bhakti Lata Bij, means the seed of the vine or creeper of devotion. So this is a bit of an elaborated translation. According to their karma, all living entities are wandering throughout the entire universe. Some of them are being elevated to the upper planetary systems and some are going down into the lower planetary systems. Out of many millions of wandering living entities, one who is very fortunate gets an opportunity to associate with a bona fide spiritual master by the grace of Krishna. By the mercy of both Krishna and the spiritual master, such a person receives the seed of the creeper of devotional service. So wandering and wandering, wandering through so many species of life, planes of life, experiences, living out so much variety of karma, and the blessed soul, you know, they will come in contact with, with the Vaishnava guru and, and receive that seed of faith, right? And then the journey begins, the real journey begins. And now, so this is a really wonderful analogy that Mahaprabhu gives of this the seed of faith of devotion, and then he elaborates upon that. When a person receives the seed of devotion, they should take care of it by becoming a gardener and sowing the seed in their heart. If they water the seed gradually by the process of shravan and kirtan, hearing and chanting, the seed will begin to sprout. As one waters the bhakti lata bij, the seed sprouts, and the creeper, the vine, gradually grows to the point where it penetrates the walls of this universe and goes beyond the Viraja river, lying between the spiritual world and the material world. It attains Brahma-loka, the Brahman effulgence, and penetrating through that stratum, 
It reaches the spiritual sky and the spiritual planet, Goloka Vrindavan. So this seed of faith, right, seed of devotion, now it's sprouting into a, a vine. And, so the, and, and, and it's growing through all the different layers of the universe. And so what this is representing is a development of consciousness, right? From moving from lower exploitation consciousness to higher and higher levels of dedication consciousness. That dedication makes us lighter, enables us to go up and higher. Exploitation weighs us down to lower planes of life. Because we can only contact, we can, if we want to dominate and exploit, we can only do that over something that is inferior to ourselves, right? That's just common sense. We can only control something lower than ourselves. So as long as we have that desire of, that of exploitation in our hearts, we have to contact, necessarily we have to contact a lower plane. But the more we can let go of that, the more we can contact higher planes, more beautiful planes, right? You know, like Satan, you know, to reign in hell or to serve in heaven, right? And then there's a whole spectrum, right? And as our consciousness evolves in the spirit of dedication, we'll move to higher and higher planes. So this is being compared to this vine, which is growing through the different strata, of the planes of existence. And that the highest level is Goloka Vrindavan. What does that represent? Ontologically speaking, the plane of highest dedication, sacrifice, love, giving. Tobe jai tadupari Goloka Vrindavan Krishna charankapariki kore adoham Being situated in one's heart and being watered by Shravan Kirtan, the bhakti creeper grows more and more. In this way, it attains the shelter of the desire tree of the lotus feet of Krishna, who is eternally situated in the planet known as Goloka Vrindavan, in the topmost region of the spiritual sky. The creeper, vine, greatly expands in the Goloka Vrindavan planet, and there it produces the fruit of love for Krishna. Although remaining in the material world, the gardener regularly sprinkles the creeper with the water of hearing and chanting. So the fruit of love for Krishna <laughs> is the final destination. I'm going to stop here because um, actually it would be nice to continue maybe tomorrow or another day because the analogy continues, right? As a gardener right, taking care of this little sprout, you know, what are the different challenges that you face, right? So, Jai Shri Chaitanya Charitamrita Ki Jai Krishna's Kavi Raj Goswami Ki Jai Shri Guru Deva Ki Jai all these summons of Odis ki chai. She had in arms, thank you, thank you, chai. Chai Gorpremanande. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you got something from this. Have a beautiful day, folks. Ribol.